Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. All of a sudden, I had to come to grips with preserving my sanity, preserving my faith in mankind. One day when I was coming home uh, into my funky apartment I had in that cool bohemian neighborhood of Jihangir, I saw this guy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Jessica Hinken. And I'm Laura Wexler. And this week on the podcast, Lost Loves, two stories about romances cut short by twists of fate. Before we get started, we want to thank Mend Acupuncture, a longtime sponsor of the podcast, and they are named Best Place to Get Poked. Uh, they are just a, a lovely place to go in, especially if you just need some acupuncture at the last minute. They're in multiple locations throughout Baltimore. So this first story is by a gentleman. He really is a gentleman. He was so dapper. Um, his name is John Wesley, and he works um, in Baltimore's... Um, newly created um, Office of Diversity and Equity for the city government. Um, And so he was listening via Zoom to a show that we did a week or so ago. And he um, Zoomed in to share this story during um, the time where audience members can share. And we thought it was just such a lovely story. I just wanted to tell a quick story about dealing with reconciliation and shock and value and all of it. And it has to do with 9-11. I lost my former fiance in the plane that crashed into the Pentagon. She was a school teacher with one of her students. And the student was uh, uh, an 11th, I mean, a sixth grader, 11-year-old Asia Carter. Sarah uh, Miller-Clark was a school teacher. Uh, The extraordinary thing about all of that happening at the same time is that the experience challenged everything about who I thought I was. Uh, It challenged my faith. uh, It challenged my beliefs. uh, It challenged my uh, uh, unconscious bias, which is something that my boss teaches us a lot about. Uh, But it challenged all of that about me. And it was playing out on the world stage um, uh, everything that I'd ever believed about good things uh, happening to uh, bad people, uh, the, the whole idea of the people who committed the murders, committed suicide at the same time that they did it. Um, it was on the air 24 hours a day. It was a worldwide event. Uh, and all of this stuff is and at the same time. My faith as I said, it was challenging. So all of a sudden, I had to come to grips with preserving my sanity, uh, preserving my faith in mankind, uh, everything that I ever thought I'd learned about esoterica, you know, uh, it was all challenged all at the same time. But I knew that the first thing that I had to deal with was not losing my mind. And that challenge in and of itself uh, was something that I was reminded of in a very strange way by my grandmother. Uh, And it's it's in a a strange kind of way. 
Um, I grew up in the Delta of Mississippi uh, during the 50s in the middle of the civil rights movement. And um, I watched uh, people going against unbelievable odds and they always kept their balance. I, I, I always remember that. They always kept their balance. They always had this, um, you know, when I look at her and I look at, you know, my godmother, Fannie Lou Hamer, and they worked together for the same rich white families and, and uh, we share crop together and all that. And, and watching them deal with uh, people who were uh, racist. I mean, people who were mean. Uh, my granddad barbecued for Ross Barnett and uh, John Stennis and James Eastman. And I picked cotton on their plantations. Uh, but because I was around them and I saw them, even as a little kid, I knew that I, I could not hate them because somehow I was taught that if I got into the hate part of it, that I would lose an advantage, that somehow there was an advantage to being able to look at what was going on and, and size up what was going on, but at the same time, not to be so controlled by it that you lose your sanity. So I just think that the whole idea of centering, uh, being able to talk about it, but the whole idea of being able to center and not lose control of who you are in a time of crisis is something that I learned from watching um, my grandmother and her friends just be still, uh, doing the elegant thing, often in a time of crisis. That's my story. Yep. He has um, lived an extraordinary life and has such a capacity for love and forgiveness. It's It was really inspiring to hear that just at, off the cuff and yeah. we weren't anticipating it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Just like moving away from what you would think of as the typical like loss of love to considering these larger questions of um, how do you stay balanced when you are completely thrown. I think so many of us are in situations like that over these past two years, um, and it was really was really good to hear. Before we go on to our second story for today, we want to thank Baltimore Magazine. You can find them at baltimoremagazine.com and also on the newsstand. And we are doing a show with um, the Baltimore Wedding folks from Baltimore Magazine, and that will be May 11th at the Baltimore Museum of Industry. It's going to be a show about weddings, stuff from mother-in-laws and brides and grooms and caterers and wedding crashers, all kinds of wedding stories. So join us for that. Okay, so the next storyteller is Katrina Hanley, and this is a story that she shared also um, at our rom-com uh, show, and it's just a an epic story about falling in love and um, and then missing an important date. Take a listen. So if I listened 
to messages from the universe, I probably wouldn't be here today because I'm not kidding. In the last few days, in three unrelated incidents, my car broke down, my phone died permanently, irreparably, and I had major surgery on my hand. But sometimes reading messages from the universe is not that easy, as this story will maybe illustrate. When I was 20, I was living in Istanbul. This was in 1981, a year after the brutal military coup that resulted in three years of heavy martial law. And uh, hundreds of thousands of people were arrested and some were tortured, both on the right and the left, because it was a kind of Turkish nationalist movement. But I didn't really notice all of that. Uh, what I did notice was on every corner, street corner, there was a soldier with a big mitraillette, you know, gun. And also there was a curfew between midnight and five in the morning. And if you were caught out during curfew, you could be shot on sight legally. We knew this. And while I was there, a couple of people were, tourists were shot down in the uh, Sultan Ahmed Blue Mosque touristy area. Uh, were shot in the back, running, probably stumbling out of, you know, hash bars and opium dens and things that were kind of trendy back then. <laughs> but the reason that I was in Istanbul is a little, it's another story, but it involves following a French diplomat from Greece. Um, <laughs> this was part, this whole thing was part of uh, a gap year that turned into four where I was backpacking around the world and um, getting jobs and picking up lovers when I needed them, both. So here I was in Istanbul, and it, through my diplomat friend, I found out that there was an opening at the most exclusive school in town, private school, French, the French consulate school that served the children of diplomats and also the wealthiest of the Turkish elite, um, for whom French, speaking French was, well, that's the language of diplomacy, so it was more important than English. Um, the position was art teacher, and uh, I draw on the level of a three-year-old um, back then, too. Uh, so I conned my way into the job, mostly because I speak French, and I was not Turkish, and the art teacher had suddenly decided to leave her husband a week before the semester began, so I got this job. Um, the school was illegal, but it existed underground, so we were paid in cash at Turkish lira, totally worthless outside the country. Every two weeks, I'd get a big brown paper bag of the lira and carry it home. <laughs> wasn't allowed to open a bank account because it wasn't Turkish. It was an odd situation because all the powerful people sent their kids to this school. Anyway, I used to ride my bike back and forth uh, and uh, the kids would get dropped off by chauffeurs. So I loved Istanbul. It was amazing. It was just, you know, magical, as they say. It was beautiful old mosques, you know, this ancient city, fantastic views with the Bosphorus and the Black Sea, the spice markets, the bazaars, the very friendly people, the cosmopolitan 
nature of the town and fantastic food. One day when I was coming home uh, into my funky apartment I had in the cool bohemian neighborhood of Fujihangir, uh, which is medieval with twisty streets and big staircases. It's kind of three-dimensional because it would lead down to the Bosphorus Strait. Um, I saw this guy, the most handsome guy I've ever seen in my life, standing at the bottom of the stairs, kicking a ball around. He had dark hair and blue-green eyes. and He tried to chat me up, and I pretended not to care. This went on for a few days. I was coming down every day, like hauling my bike down the stairs. And he began to help me with my bike. Uh, eventually, we engaged and uh, chatted, and I turned into this amazing love affair. We were totally in love. We'd go out in the evenings to the rooftop beer gardens lit by lanterns to the discotheques to the nightclubs and we spent as much time together as we could it was fantastic but avoiding curfew <laughs> but my the academic year was coming to an end my visa was expiring and they took visas very seriously it had to leave the country every few months to get a stamp and how were we going to stay together I mean 1981 <laughs> Uh, no Turks were really allowed to leave the country, let alone a young man of military age. Re-enter French diplomat, uh, who had connections <laughs> quite high up, and we managed to get a visa for my friend to France that would supersede the restrictions of military uh, government, which was amazing. The problem was that his visa was coming a week after my visa was expiring. So we made a plan that we would meet in France. We'd meet in Paris. Uh, and we set a day. We're going to meet on this Friday at noon, picking the most romantic spot we could think of, which was the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> now, remember, this is 81. There's no email. There's no cell phones. And in fact, many people in Istanbul, including Jumur's family, did not have a landline. So the only way of communicating was through the mail. Well, I got on the bus uh, on the day. The bus, yes. Uh, I traveled cheap <laughs> to go to Paris. And uh, somewhere in the middle of Yugoslavia, the bus driver fell asleep. And we had a head-on collision with a car and the two people in the car were killed and we were all unhurt but the bus driver was arrested uh, and we were just kind of left by the side of the road and told well in a few days a bus will come probably <laughs> so I hitchhiked the rest of the way uh, and got to the youth hostel pretty exhausted discombobulated you know uh, out of sorts <laughs> uh, but in time to make the meeting, so I went, took the metro, got to the Eiffel Tower, and I waited, and he didn't show up. I waited a long time. He didn't come. So I went back, bought a newspaper, got back on the train, and that's when I realized that it was Saturday. I'd missed the day. So I went back the next day, thinking, well, you know, he'll show up. I went back for several days after that. I wrote letters to him, but uh, I never heard from him again. And 
I don't know whether he gave up because I didn't show up or whether he never showed up. Maybe he was stopped at the border. Maybe he just used me to get the visa. I don't know. So I had to do some thinking. And after a few weeks, I thought I read the signs from the universe. I put my backpack on. And I went off on more adventures. So this story feels so heightened in every sense of the word. You know, she's this young woman traveling with her little dog, and then she meets this beautiful man, like, in this medieval part of Istanbul, and, um, you know, they're under martial law, they can't be out later, they might be shot, you know, and he can't leave because he's got to do his military service, so, and then they miss their reunion right in front of the Eiffel Tower. It's just like, I believe every second of it, and yet it does feel so... Unbelievable. Yeah, or just so heightened in the way that life rarely does, at least my own life. It had real uh, English patient vibes to me. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's just so beautiful. And again, we talked, you know, we talked a lot with Katrina about like... How do you interpret this fact that you didn't, you went on the wrong day? Well, is it intentional? Yeah. You went back and he didn't come on other days and you could never reach him. Like, and so it's a story that ends with way more questions than answers, which I think gives it this like everlasting quality. You know, it's just great. Anyway. Thanks for listening to it. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. We want to thank the Wine Source, a wonderful wine, beer, and snacks supplier in Hamden. Please visit them and tell them the Stoop sent you. Please visit stoopstorytelling.com to learn about our May 11th show at the Baltimore Museum of Industry and other upcoming events. And you can also listen to stories there. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stoop Storytelling Series. And we want to thank Maureen Harvey, who produces the podcast, and to y'all for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the studio. Stay safe. Just where